This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is July 20th, 2023, and I'm Ian Bushfield. Joining me today is Stuart Press. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we will probably have Scott back. Well, I might be on a trip next week. He might do a show next week. We might not have a show next week. It's middle of summer, but there is some news this week. So we have a show, and we're going to talk about policing. What is it good for when it comes to the RCMP? Maybe everything or nothing, depending who you ask. As always, uh, getting involved in the conversation behind the show, patreon.com slash politicoast, and we'll throw you an invite to our very active Slack channel where we talk about all of these things continuously. The big news here in the province is that the decision has been made on the battle between the Surrey police and the RCMP. I'm going to talk about this a lot more with Matthew tomorrow on Canby Report, so look for that episode in your feed as well, probably at the same time as this is coming out. But we want to talk about it here because it's also a provincial news story. This is a big move from Minister Mike Barnworth to exercise some of the powers in the Police Act that are very well defined now, according to the lawyers who've been consulting. Just from the high level, Stuart, what did you make of this decision to, I don't know, finally bring down the hammer? Yeah, that's uh, very clearly what happened here. It seems like the the province had for what you could say are, are perhaps good reasons and also purely political reasons really tried to avoid taking responsibility for for this decision. They wanted it to be a decision taken at the at the municipal level and and so from a theory a democratic theory you want to decision to be taken at the most um local level possible that encompasses the views of all affected by a decision. So there's there's good reasons to to defer to local decision makers uh, from, from that sort of democratic theory perspective. It also is a thorny uh, issue where people were highly divided. So if you're looking to not alienate voters within the the, uh, the all-important uh, south of the Frazee Surrey area uh, for an upcoming provincial election, you might want someone else to have to bear the responsibility for making this decision. And I think for both those reasons, the the BC NDP were trying to to nudge the this the city forward to make it easy to make the decision that, that the province wanted and and hard to to not and yet the 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 city continued to insist on doing the hard thing and and trying to persevere with this RCMP decision and so it seems like the political calculus changed and it became more important to to the province to to get this resolved get it done definitively than to to continue to defer and so that that was interesting to watch that that calculus change yeah it's been a decision that's was pretty much telegraphed for months uh quite a while ago i, I don't even remember the timeline but it felt like in the fall, possibly even like right after Brenda Locke was elected, she's like, I'm going to bring back the RCMP. She held a vote on that. Uh, the province said, hey, talk to us first. And then they didn't. In the early part of this year, the province came back with a report saying, no, we rec- we've reviewed this. We recommend you go to the Surrey Police Service. And here's $150 million to cover the cost of the difficulty, because we know that's going to be a challenge for you. One of the complaint Surrey has had is that they would save money by going back to the RCMP. And the math here is hidden behind non-disclosure agreements on both sides, apparently, as we've joked about on Cambria Report as well. And so, you know, from that point on where the province and Mike Farnworth were willing to cut checks, it seemed like the decision had been made. Like, But Brenda Locke dug in so hard on this that, you know, it just became this battle of war of words we haven't talked about it too much on here but like she accused the minister of misogyny at one point which was just wild to see all of these negotiations done so publicly and vitriolically it's not a word vitriolically with such vitriol it is uh 
it yeah, it is unusual. You normally see cities and provinces try to find ways to, if there are differences, paper over them because they need to continue to work together. I remember there was a, a few times in uh, the last uh, municipal term where, where Kennedy Stewart had some very pointed words in in the uh, the public domain for higher levels of government. But it seemed like he was very much an outsider throwing criticisms as opposed to an insider trying to negotiate with with uh, partner governments to, to get the best deal possible. So whenever you get to that point where two levels of government that have to work together so closely are, are so publicly at odds with one another, something has clearly gone awry. And it seems it seems like if you want to to place blame here, there's a certain amount of blame in the way in which the city went about reversing a, a previous decision. And and I think the the province's point of view was that it was fine to change the the uh, policing for Surrey. It was fine to start that process, but to start a process and then stop it to to under to reverse a previous democratic decision is itself a a a, a problematic. A democratic principle, but it is also a, a huge uh, cluster F. It, it, it just makes it impossible to to police the city and police the jurisdiction. It, it raised the, the specter of having this decision reversed again another four years down the road. And so it, it was very clear that it's it was not a tenable situation. It was not a situation that the province could could allow to linger or or indeed repeat itself. And so we also heard from the minister that uh, some, some legislation is going to be in the offing to ensure such a mess never occurs again and that might be something to talk about uh, yeah i want to come minutes. back to that but before that you know i have at least like two or three threads i want to pull on first on the political calculus uh angle it's a really interesting decision from the province right because as you mentioned it is it could be risky in the city but in terms of like the democratic legitimacy of this you know back and forth by brenda Locke, like she won 28 percent of the vote in october Doug McCallum, who campaigned to keep the Surrey police, won 27%. In the previous election, he won, I think, 28 or 29%. And so these are not like resounding mandates. Like they won their first past the post elections. But from the pr province's point of view, the majority of people stayed home. And then the second largest chunk of people either didn't care because they voted for someone who wasn't campaigning on police issues in Surrey or you know, they kind of split right down the middle on this question. So undoubtedly the, and the NDP scored big in Surrey in the last election. I think I looked it up. It was like 57 to 59% of the vote. I don't remember exactly in 2020. So they're well situated in those ridings. And politically, the calculus of like not doing anything and continuing to have this drag on is probably worse than just, you know, taking whatever hit this cost them. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think there there's a, a couple of different calculations ongoing. I think it helped that this had become such a mess that the if the province stepped in at an early moment and just imposed a solution, I think that might have been seen as more anti-democratic. But but here it, it it's much more of a sense that the province is saving the city from itself and allowing a decision to be taken. And if you talk to people in Surrey, I think anybody who is not fully dug in on the issue with one side or the other. All they really want is an answer so that they can get on with, with talking about anything else. It just has dominated decision-making and uh, conversation, and it has really paralyzed decision-making in, in the city. How do you plan around a future for any kind of municipal action when you're not even sure who your, who your police force is you're trying to co coordinate with five years from now? And so, so I think that that gave them additional cover as well to essentially be the heroes of this story. And you could see around the region a, a collective uh, breath of relief. We saw their mayor saying, yeah, time to move on. And that might be something you're talking about on Canby Report tomorrow. But we did we saw Mayor Ken Sim in Vancouver saying, yeah, this is great. We can accept this and, and get on with our lives. Um, I found it, it just to to go back to that municipal election. I do think if, if you believe in mandates, not all politicians, political scientists sign on to the idea of mandates existing. We don't know exactly what a vote means per se, but if there was one for this last election in Surrey, it was very clearly to elect somebody who was not Doug McCallum. People were very tired of Doug McCallum other than his his closest and, and most uh, committed supporters. And so if, if Ms. Locke had a mandate, it was to not be Doug McCallum. It was not to reverse the, the policing decision. And and to not be Doug McCallum would be to return normalcy to, to city politics in Surrey. And yet that is 
That is not what we've seen. We've seen a continued personalization of, of this issue, which is unfortunate. It's an important issue. And there are there are arguments on both sides. The change in, in the financial situation for Surrey makes it a lot easier to to go forward with the Surrey Police Service and to to gain the benefits of a local police service with hopefully additional accountability. But, but we never really got to that conversation. We just got to like this war of words and, and accusations of misogyny, which um, I don't think did anyone any good. Uh, yeah, it's definitely been a difficult couple of years in this transition for the city you know two forces it turns out are not better than one uh, which kind of brings like us to the official reason for picking surrey police service and what it seems like is the motivation to double triple down or you know put all its stakes on this side of the debate and that's the province's claim that seems believable that the surrey rcmp as an existence, uh, is going to pull RCMP officers from other communities. Uh, they point to an ongoing vacancy problem, both in BC and across Canada for the RCMP. This is something that they brought up with the federal government, and we'll come back to that in our next story because it's a big one. And so, you know, staffing the RCMP is a major challenge. And so the motion, the movements the province took under Section 2 of the Police Act aren't just about public safety in Surrey, but public safety across the province and that's where the province really had to step in and they said if surrey goes rcmp and pulls officers from uh prince george and the island and all these other more remote places they can't be effectively policed so they're gonna have to go to surrey police service who by all accounts a number of the officers there are quite happy and if they get shut down they're not going to go back to the rcmp so we exacerbate the issue and that's where the province seems to have said here's the evidence we need to go to Surrey Police Service there. So those who want to stick with the RCMP have positions elsewhere. Yep. The RCMP, and this is a, um, a real issue for the province. And I wouldn't be surprised if this issue comes back in other ways. And we're going to talk about national RCMP uh, issues in, in a minute. But even within the province where one... One force that the province doesn't have ultimate control over is responsible for so much of policing in in this province, and whether it's remote communities or whether it's Surrey until this moment, or whether it's a variety of, of specialized police services, and and to have one city to potentially upend that that apple cart and to create potential challenges for policing the entire rest of the province, I think uh, I, I think this is an issue where the the province may start to take more seriously the idea of policing being done in province in ways that the province can can control. And so this this may be an episode with longer term implications just than who is actually uh, walking the beat here. In, in yeah, and that kind of brings us to the promised legislation. I mean, going back a bit further in 2020, the province kicked off a big review of the Police Act which came forward from all parties with a unanimous set of recommendations that started with get rid of the RCMP, bring back a provincial force that's more accountable to the people of BC, as well as a number of steps around training and de-escalation and so forth. And here we got a hint of legislation coming this fall that, quote, ensures this type of situation never happens again, which, you know, there's something to be said about not legislating around like bad case or you know, test cases. Um, but so I, but, you know, maybe we're going to get some really weird language around non-disclosure agreements in the police act, but what else would you be looking for in that kind of legislation when it comes? So I think, I mean, it will be interesting at what they see as being the problem in my sense from, from conversations I've had, uh, is that it's not a question of say curtailing municipal power, so they want to respect local decision-making power. So still that cities are responsible for these decisions, who is going to be policing uh, municipalities, anything over 5,000 people is the threshold in, in the, the legislation. Uh, but if if a, a municipality engages in this kind of transition, sort of like a one-shot deal, you make the democratic decision 
and and then that's it. It's like Brexit. You, once you once you've Brexited, you're not re-entering. You've 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 done that, and then you have to move on with with the realities. And so, if a municipality wants to initiate that that process, then then there there are more I think defined parameters about where it looks like and when it becomes a a path of, of no return. I think that's one piece. Another piece is the that non-disclosure agreements. I I think would have to think it was extremely frustrating to have to to publicly negotiate the signing of non-disclosure agreements just to learn about uh, police staffing issues in a city within the province when you are the Minister of Public Safety. I think that might have stuck in Minister Farnworth's craw a little bit. And so trying to streamline the flow of information. I would love to see information actually flowing back to the public as well so we don't have this battle of of uh, they, they, they said, they said without any kind of facts backing it up for the public discourse. I don't know if we're going to see that. That has not been a real priority of this government, I think, in terms of dramatically increased transparency. So I, I don't, I'm not holding my breath for that, but I would love to see that. But but those are two issues, I think, that we would see. And perhaps finding ways to to ensure that there might be additional guardrails uh, that uh, once a, pro- a city engages in a process, it will be uh, it, will, it will inevitably go towards a, a clear outcome. Yeah, I think the challenge there will be how do you make sure you're not disincentivizing the change, right? Because you do, I don't think we want changes happening all the time that kind of disrupts the steady flow of justice, perhaps, uh, and the, you know, the administration of it. But at the same time, you don't want to like discourage the discussion from even happening. Like we don't want to end up in a situation where we are with like the federal constitution where no one even talks about it, even though it's like in desperate need of a lot of reforms. And so. Yeah. We have enough of an allergy to change in this, this country as it is. We don't want to make change harder because change is already plenty hard. But uh, I think that's a, that's a good point. So it's somehow to, to streamline a process and perhaps make it easier, more supported, but, but also more definitive. So that, there's a balance there for sure. But we do... And this is something legislators have to deal with as well, where you want the principle that each parliament is is sovereign in its own its own right. It, it can't be overruled by previous parliaments, but you also have to have some kind of respect for decisions once they're taken to continually relitigate everything. We, we can see that playing out in south of the, the border as well, where every time a new president comes in, they're the the first hundred things they do are just reversing the things that the last person in the office did. And, and that's um, not a great basis for government either. So I think there needs to be some thinking about how exactly to, to safeguard these issues. And it's something to watch. The last thing that's really interesting in this announcement to me before we move on to the national story is the appointment of Jessica McDonald as the strategic implementation advisor. That they're having an advisor to just like take over this isn't that notable. I think that's an entirely reasonable decision. She is going to be here to help everyone meet timelines, facilitate dispute resolution, uh, and ensure effective communication, something that's not existed so far. What's really notable, and this is pointed out by Rob Shaw and others on Twitter and elsewhere, is that she's not a nobody to this government. In fact, it's kind of a surprising pick. She was a former deputy minister to Gordon Campbell. She was the BC Hydro CEO appointed by Christy Clark up until the first day the BC NDP formed government in 2017 when they fired her. Uh, so I guess they've smoothed over relations with Ms. McDonald, and she has now got a new job with the province. Mm-hmm. It may be a, an opportunity for, for Ms. McDonald to, to uh, re, uh, re-acclimatize herself to, to the new government. Uh, I, 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 know, I know nothing about the, the background for that, that decision, so it's all pure speculation. But there is often something to be said for uh, increasing the, the, the reliability of an interlocutor or a mediator if it's someone that is not too close to uh, either side, particularly the side that holds all the cards. The province, it's very clear that the province, are, they're in charge of this process and the city is going to have to do the... the uh, the, the province is bidding. So whoever they appoint is going to be uh, obviously sharing the province's goals. That's why they have that job. But but perhaps it can 
smooth over relations somewhat with with the city if it's someone who is not seen as uh, uh, simply a, a, a doer of deeds for, for the NDP, that it's someone with a little more uh, independence of, of reputation. Indeed. Well, let's jump to the star's big exclusive from Monday. This is from journalist Tonda McCharles, their Ottawa bureau chief, talking about uh, sources within government saying that Justin Trudeau, Marco Mendicino, public safety minister, and senior Mounties, that includes the RCMP commissioner, Michael Duhem, are all in favor of the RCMP becoming what they have described as FBI of the North. with basically the RCMP being removed from uh, local contract policing. Basically, the RCMP would stop doing policing in Surrey and everywhere else under this plan that doesn't have a timeline, but realistically wouldn't probably happen before the contracts expire in 2032. Like, not an entirely surprising bombshell given the last, you know, decade or even longer of scandals within the RCMP relating to uh, misogyny, um, homophobia, ineffective efforts, as we saw in the inquiry in Nova Scotia around the mass casualty inquiry, um, and like the BC recommendations, the Alberta government has been, you know, looking at removing the RCMP for a while for different reasons. Um, but overall, the you know the winds have been shifting against the RCMP in many ways, and it's interesting at least to see these very prominent voices start to muse with taking a pretty radical change to an institution that's now 150 years old. Mm-hmm. And it is an institution that has had a variety of roles in the past and has gone through significant changes before. So this is not, this would not be the first time the RCMP has had a, a significant change in its mission. It's, uh, it was once upon a time responsible for, for domestic intelligence in, in the country. And in, in the wake of the, the policing of, of Quebec after the FLQ crisis that, uh, that led to another major inquiry that that recommended the creation of, of CSIS as a, a separate intelligence agency. And so the RCMP, at times has been seen as being in need of of reining in and, and refocusing. And so this could be the latest in, in that development. We do know that police accountability is one of the, the major political challenges of I mean, really the not so early 21st century in, in so many jurisdictions jurisdictions around the world and, and across Canada. How do you ensure the relationship between the population and the, the, the those forces entrusted with power to 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 maintain public order? How that relationship is, is a good and, and trusted one. And it seems like again and again the RCMP are falling short in, in their ability to to maintain that trust and and the the mass casualty report really lays bare just just how badly the, the RCMP has has effectively messed up some really important acts. And and so it, I think it's not just the fact that there have been mistakes that this RCMP has been unwilling or unable to reform itself for, for a prolonged period of time, perhaps suggests that this is a way to, to force change, to really get those lines of accountability refocused rather than through trying to restructure the RCMP's local uh, battalions and and their accountability mechanisms but to really bring those the those policing units into the communities in a more permanent basis it means it, it's a it's a move towards decentralization of canada there are implications that we can we i don't think we fully can can uh, be be sure of yet but i think uh, this seems like it's a, a change that is increasingly uh, of its time and the rcmp is increasingly uh, a force out of its time and and uh, this this is one way for it to re rebuild morale and to rebuild a, a sense of, of uh, positive purpose for the rcmp as well so so it in the long run, uh, this may be something that the force more broadly comes to embrace. And certainly, I think that's one of the reasons why we see senior uh, leaders within yeah, the force already the speaking. Yeah, the strongest voice against it is obviously the National Police Federation, the uh, Association of Employees of the Organization and the Bargaining Unit. I'm, I'm not going to go down to calling police as having unions for my own political reasons. Uh, but, you know, this is, an, is the group that frequently been one of the largest spenders on political advertising on Facebook and Meta in Canada for a number of years, spending tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars 
to defend their jobs because they don't want to lose big contracts like Surrey or Alberta or BC. And so they're trying to, you know, gin up the profile of the Mounties in a positive way. And so it's not surprising to see their president, you know, making comments, calling this demoralizing apocalyptic for the force, because it would be, it would mean a lot of job losses or at least job transfers to different forces, but it would mean they were no longer RCMP officers. They'd be different. I just love the uh, President Sove quoted to the media that they already are the FBI of the North, which is true. They do do national security policing, which is why the comments of saying that's what they should transform into were a little weird to me. But he goes on to say, we're actually the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, Homeland Security, as well as the U.S. Marshals and Secret Service, which kind of highlights that, you know, maybe the U.S. doesn't do it perfectly, but like they do it differently and effectively by having that sort of decentralized and specialized forces for different purposes. And like, you know, I, I discussed this with Scott a few years ago when policing was really high in the news following the George Floyd killing in 2020. And we dug through the history of policing in BC and in Canada. And like, everyone kind of knows the RCMP started as the Northwest Mounted Police. And it was kind of the, you know, pacify the plains uh, and help colonization efforts across the West. But it transformed into the RCMP and it never became contract policing until roughly the mid 20th century. And it was a bargain between the federal government who agreed to take on a portion of the funding and the provinces who are struggling to fund their own policing, especially Alberta and Saskatchewan, but BC to a certain point by the 40s and 50s so that there could be one police force across the country. And, you know, the cons the slightly conspiracy-minded version is, you know, that's your anti-Red Scare. You can really track all of your dissidents much easier if you have one force that is sharing information in the pre-internet uh, and electronics age. But was that the right idea for, you know, democracy and for Canada, and especially now, as we need more oversight of how these organizations and agencies are acting um, you know I, I cheer this on because I am pretty uh, pretty down on the RCMP I don't see them as that great especially given everything we've seen over the last few years that's not to say I think anything that will replace it will necessarily be better but there's an opportunity there I think it's very hard for a single police force to be attentive to the needs of of all Canadians and I think the, a more prosaic version of the story of how the RCMP grew over time was similar to the way in which the the, the federal government grew at, the, at that time as well. They were looking for ways to to expand and, and coordinate and centralize and and uh, homogenize governance across the country and and uh, offering the RCMP up as a local police force was a way to to expand that that federal reach overall. And provinces were looking for ways to save money, and this was a way to save um, a certain amount of money on on policing. And so I think uh, dollars and cents perhaps drove the decision to to begin with, and uh, uh, and yet now. We're seeing how that that's not the only thing that we can think about. We do need to think about these other issues. We have school boards that are accountable to to local communities because we think that's an important principle. We have uh, city councils accountable to to local populations for all kinds of decisions, including the decision of how to police. And so uh, that combined with a contract out to a federal agency that is not immediately answerable to a local board is a kind of frustration of, of that vision of locally accountable policing. And so uh, we really are moving towards that direction where any kind of city of any kind of size may have to make the move that, sorry, now seems to once again be making, which is towards a locally run, locally accountable police force with police officers who are, are long-time residents of, of the community are not going to be uh, moved in and out from a federal agency and, and perhaps lacking that that long-term commitment to the community. And so it, it won't be a, a perfect solution. There are still issues with locally uh, locally organized uh, police boards and police uh, police forces reported to local boards 
but but at least it it provides an additional lever of uh, a potential accountability and and communication and and institutionalization of these police forces so we will wait and see whether this is just a tri balloon that goes nowhere or a thought balloon or 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 what but uh, it is interesting that these conversations yeah, are it, emerging that in multiple ways they're willing to tie the prime the minister time. and public safety ministers name to this just to me it's more than just you know like the lowest level would be it's a bargaining trip to try to push the rcmp to do better um like if this went through like trudeau's already we forget i think racked up a number of major changes to canadian society uh not all have you know been fulfilled like his promise for electoral reform but we have a child care system now we have uh cannabis decriminalization uh we have begun the bumpy path of uh you know reconciling with indigenous people in many ways but abolishing the rcmp would be a hell of a legacy to add on to everything else that's happening under his watch uh i'm not saying he's been a perfect prime minister but we just i think sometimes forget like the canada of 2015 versus the canada of 2023 so yeah yeah, absolutely. It is. Uh, I, we, we you can add to that list the the, the carbon tax, the, the establishment of a federal jurisdiction over a national price on carbon. I think one of the things when we look back on on the liberal time in office, whenever it draws to an end, and uh, I'm not one who's who's convinced that they're going to lose the next election. It seems like that um, we're, we're having the speculation about who's going to have who's going to have the balance of power and, and uh, who is going to have confidence of the House. And I think we're it's a little premature to be having those discussions yet. We don't know. But um, we, when we look back, it'll be a government that didn't achieve what everyone hoped for. It's, it's uh, the, the promises that were made. It's it's rhetoric soared far beyond what it was actually doing. But but it is introduced sort of the first step of a number of significant changes. So even if the carbon tax is not enough to transform the economy at its current rate, the carbon tax now exists. It's another lever of power that the federal government can use and perhaps use more more effectively in future. Uh, Physician-assisted dying, uh, the, the legalization of cannabis, these are all issues where perhaps not everything is working in quite the way it should, but but it has introduced this this moment of change that that is going to have long-term implications for how we think about life in Canada. Even, even the idea of a, a gender-balanced cabinet that came in for a lot of uh, scrutiny, it was celebrated in some quarters and it was uh, uh, sort of mocked in, in others, but it introduced a new way to think about representation at around cabinet, that most important table in, in the country. And so we don't just ask, is there a minister from from the Maritimes? Is there a minister from the Edmonton area? Is, is there gender diversity around that, that cabinet table? That's a question we're always going to ask and, and we have a, a marker to, to measure other cabinets by. And so, so some things, uh, and I don't want to turn this into some sort of had geography for Trudeau either. There's all kinds of disappointments along the way, but but you're you're right. There's there are there are transformations. Well, one of the big there. challenges he's facing is you know the ongoing cost of living crisis, inflationary pressures, and thankfully for him, he saw this week that inflation is down to two point eight percent nationally. But one of the big challenges is the price of housing. You know, this has hit you, this has hit me, uh, and it's hitting so many different people. And someone trying to propose solutions perhaps to this was NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who was in Windsor this week, trying to talk about the mortgage bombshell, as he called it, that is hitting Canadian homeowners. And he talked about an example of someone on a 25-year variable mortgage who might be looking at $1,700 more a month in mortgage costs. And how will someone afford that amid higher grocery prices and everything else? And, you know, I'm just glad, Stuart, that we finally have politicians in this country looking out for the beleaguered homeowner. It's about time because, I mean, when are governments going to stop pandering to renters? As as a homeowner. Finally give your poor homeowner a break. I feel... It's a fascinating thing in a number of different ways. Why, why, why are we, why are we focused on subsidizing homeowners when, when not renters at the same time? Why don't we subsidize all Canadians? Because they're all facing those same costs. If, if homeowners are facing increasing costs, you know who else is the people who rent from the homeowners, and, and yet that's not how this issue gets understood. And, And we wouldn't do that for the reason we would create additional inflationary pressures. But we're doing that with the homeowners grant anyways. And so, I think. This is uh, a reflection of 
of a political play by the NDP, but it is a play for the, I mean, it's a way to try to seem like they are the party of the middle class and those working hard to join it, which sounds a lot like the Liberal Party, I believe. And so I'm not exactly sure why the NDP would exist if that's what they're doing. Yeah, they, in his press conference, he didn't give specifics very much, but he did kind of point to other countries that he said are delivering real solutions. He pointed to Spain, where they are allegedly trying to uh, force banks to offer mortgage rates at uh, capped levels so that people don't face uh, skyrocketing interest rates. And that might be a reasonable way to slow down some of those pressures. Uh, but most critically, especially for many of the people we know uh, who are quick to criticize them, and I share in this criticism, is he pointed to Portugal's mortgage reliefs and the idea of just cutting checks to people who have capital assets. Like, no, you know, there are people, and I'm not, you know, going to try and say there aren't people who with mortgages who are struggling. There absolutely are. And I think that does raise a question of like, how do you help them? And how do you make sure people aren't losing their homes? But it is rich to take the, you know, country national revenue, which is raised from all Canadians and businesses and give it to people who already have assets when many people don't and are struggling. And so I don't know the details of the Portugal model. Maybe it is focused specifically on those with severe cash flow issues. And so it's more of a temporary loan or something like that. Maybe something like that. But, you know, that Im initial idea of like, let's cover people's mortgage payments turns a lot of people off very justifiably. Mm -hmm. I think it, it even as a political play, you would, you'd win the support of those with, with significant mortgage payments, but those who have already paid off their mortgages, I would feel also are going to be kind of skeptical about that idea. And they would be much more likely to say, well, we, we had to endure hardship and we got our mortgage paid off. So why, why are they getting a break? So I could see it turning off folks on either end of the, the, the property spectrum there. I, uh, I do come back to this, this, question though of why uh if, if housing is never allowed to really falter as as a market if if there is no possibility of of essentially making a, a bad play in housing and if, if there's always going to be relief for any asset once it starts to decline is is housing really a market it seems like at that point it becomes more of a just a, a, a vehicle to transfer wealth and from from those who are lucky enough or fortunate enough or savvy enough to to be able to own one or more homes away from those who do not and that doesn't seem like the, the basis for for sound policy making or or a, a stable society in the very long run if you have a group of, of of those who have access to to comfortable housing and then you have a another out group that just sees that dream out of reach forever um that can very quickly produce a very alienated subset of, of, of society. And I think that's the long-term danger here is that we just have this growing uh, inequality and this divide in wealth between those who the haves and have-nots of, of housing. And and this this kind of policy doesn't address anything like the root causes. And if anything, it actually worsens, it worsens the problem. If you really want to make housing more affordable, uh, bring down mortgage payments, make housing more affordable by doing things like increasing the supply. Those are ultimately the solutions that are that buried are in the press release for the NDP's benefit is reduce house prices by building more homes for people. So prices don't keep rising and lead to even higher mortgages. So they have at least acknowledged that half. It's this double edged challenge with housing because it is, it's not like a widget, right? Everyone needs a home and trying to guarantee that right to housing that few politicians really want to acknowledge because to deny it is to say homelessness is inevitable and fine, which I would hope most politicians are disagree with. Uh, but then you also have a housing supply that is largely market-based. And so you have this challenge of, all right, well, we want to make sure everyone has a home, but we also are like politically dependent on uh, making sure the assets that people have because it is their largest asset. It's my largest asset by far. It's worth far more than my savings accounts or my car. Uh, my car is depreciating, but my house isn't. Uh, and then like the political re reality is just that 
homeowners vote more. Like there's a lot of privilege tied up in that because you're far more stable. You're not moving around as much. Uh, you tend to be wealthier. You, all of these things tie into voting rates. And so appealing to homeowners is always going to be politically uh, desirable for politicians. Uh, and even if it's not the best thing for society, it is the best thing for winning votes often, even in cities where, you know, it is majority renter like Vancouver is now. Yeah. I mean, it does work to a point. I wonder if it works less well for a party like the NDP, given like they're fishing the same pool of voters as the liberals with a policy like this. And so it it's that that question of why would you vote for an NDP doing an impression of the Liberal Party when you could just vote for the Liberal Party? And if people are not interested in, in the Liberal, the NDP looking more or less like the Liberals are interested in something else, well, where are they going to turn for, for that now? And and so it, it's it's a challenge when you're trying to, in one sense, supplant the, the Liberals if you really want to have a chance of forming government one day, but you're also looking to to solidify your identity as, as a political party and what you stand for to ensure you have a, a clear reason to, to be and a place on that political spectrum. This kind of policy, I think, may, may un- undermine those kinds of claims. And so I I can see why there would be some people really clamoring for, for this kind of, of policy, but I'm not convinced that it will help in the long run, and I am not convinced it will help the NDP in the long run either. But aside from that, it's great. I, I, I'm also just disappointed there aren't even really details in here. Like, if you're going to say we're, we need stronger mortgage relief, how much? How how much money are you talking yeah. about put it, paying people? And how many people? Like, give some details at least. At least in some of the supply ones, they have said we will build 500,000 homes or whatever. And like those still aren't specific enough usually for how nerdy I want to get, but this was vacuous. Just here's some ideas, which are not great ideas. They're also not clear ideas, but they're ideas. It reminds me, I, I was teaching a class on elections this week and we talked about the 2021 election. So I went back and read uh, a piece I wrote um, uh detailing how the election went and and it's we're right back there with the NDP of this stubborn inability or refusal to get into the specifics we had the, the graph without axes during the election where it was just a, a red line representing Trudeau's housing crisis nobody knew what the red line meant but by the look it didn't look good and then just this inability to to actually dive into the details. What if the, the the potential NDP voter actually wants details? They want to know what are they voting for that's different. And and this this party doesn't ever seem to be able to want to or be able to go there. And and so there uh I I was actually someone who thought the the agreement to support the Liberals was was a good move for the NDP given their their situation. But announcements like this I don't think help them in this this close relationship with the liberals they're just just ask the question well why wait what are you for again uh and and i don't it's know the policy it's the politics of aesthetics and i think that brings us to the last thing that's worth talking about and i hesitated to even put this in the show notes but it's we haven't talked about pierre polyev today and i haven't even talked about him for a few weeks and they haven't been talking policy for a while they've been They've been doing something weird. Have you noticed what Pierre Polyev looks like these days? And apparently this is news. And so I guess he's the, he's at a makeover or something. Um, he's not wearing glasses anymore and seems to have been doing some additional work in the gym or something like that. And uh, we now have three leaders of the three major English-speaking parties who are all... Uh, Apparently quite appearance conscious because this is something that we've uh, seen with, with Jagmeet Singh and, and even Justin Trudeau when he, he, he first appeared on the scene and one of his uh, sort of calling card moments was it having a boxing match. And so, so this is a, a strange little macho string theme within Canadian politics of, of the last few years. And I don't know what to make of it because we, uh, I think looking back on Canadian history, I've had a proud tradition of, of leaders who <laughs> clearly didn't care a ton about their appearance. That was not what they were there for. And yet here we are where we have all three leaders of the English speaking parties where they clearly all three are thinking about their appearance and, uh, in, in a, um, thirst trappy yeah, sort of way. It's definitely it's, it's got the vibes of like, overdone focus groups and i 
text. And somehow they all got the same focus group of whoever it is who wants to see male beefcakes, essentially, in leadership roles. Uh, like, not all Canadian politicians have been, like, dorky uggos in history. We had Pierre Trudeau, who was famously a sex symbol for his own reasons. But no, yeah, I, okay, he doesn't look go like back it, and look but at he was defined as that, Trudeau. so I don't fully understand the past. Uh, yeah. This is the, already the weirdest conversation I've ever had about Canadian politics. But you're you're right. They're they're they they're people, and 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 they were there campaigning on the basis of ideas and, and influence and other things that get into to politics. And it's just it's it's perhaps this is a an inevitable turn of politics in a more visual era where we are going to see politicians they each have a different thought on what the aesthetics of a leadership is, but we're going to have some kind of aesthetic of leadership presented. That's going to be part of the, uh, the leadership package. And, uh, um, I, I, I don't know what the policy ideas or what, what the idea is being communicated by that Maybe perhaps focus groups think that it communicates a sense of strength and purpose or resolve, or I don't know what, but, uh, well, it reminds me there was that, the platform from the Conservative Party in 2021, speaking of that election, featured that cover photo of like the magazine styled Aaron O'Toole also looking a bit extra fit. And like people mocked that at the time. But I think what's more notable now is Polyev had a very distinct like visage and brand. Like he was the nerdy, yelly guy. And I, I just get the sense they found that wasn't polling well. And decided to do a makeover. That decision itself is what's most fascinating to me here. Like Trudeau and Singh were both active people prior to getting into politics. Singh had a career in law, but he was also doing martial arts on the side. Uh, Trudeau was always an outdoorsy guy, as far as I can tell. And so when he was in that 2015 election doing the grouse grind in like, not record time, but much faster than I could do it, it all like, fit with who they were and they didn't change like Trudeau's done his changes his like beard and then shaving his beard that feels minor versus what they've done to Polyev this past month and it, it's also very surprising it kind of came out of well, nowhere I, and so a couple of things to, to uh, pick up on if we all start reciting our, our grouse grind times then this will be a very different podcast but um, I think it we can see this may be another way to frame it, which makes, uh, I don't know, total sense, but but more sense where one of the things that really helped the, the Trudeau's under Justin Trudeau was the ability to use images to convey policy. And and so the ability to sort of dress the part, it was almost like a leader playing cosplay, right? Dressed for for whatever the moment was. The, the extreme was when he uh, sat down in the, the, the teepee on, on Parliament Hill. I think there was a protest and he was wearing like a, a, a Canadian tuxedo, a jean top and jean bottom. And, uh, and it, was, it was a bit much, but he was very clear. It was just very focused on the appearance of, of the moment and, and capturing that and, and using it to, to convey not like hard policy positions, but but it's a sort of an, an emotive capacity for for the moment, and I think it it really turns some people off, and then they get really frustrated by by uh, government by by photo op, but but it also very clearly works to to convey a particular sense when people are only going to see an image and they're not even going to take the time to read the story. It conveys something. And so this may be the conservatives thinking through that as well. Uh, for me, though, it's just I'm not entirely sure what it is, what it is they're conveying by, by the image. But if we go back in time, there was a moment where Preston Manning, I believe, had uh, laser surgery and, and so suddenly showed up one day with glasses the next day without gla without glasses and 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 so this this may also simply be the inevitability of being the leader and being in the spotlight wanting to to look your best and and so perhaps we should just wish, wish Mr. Polyev uh well with his, his newfound uh, uh healthful glow don't forget Stockwell Day oh, on CD. Uh, again, trying to per, per give evidence of a certain kind of uh, of vigor and, and, and vim, and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it does not. In terms of the images, though, I want to talk about just two quickly before we close out the show is, you know, it was stampede season a couple of weeks ago in Calgary, and that has every politician show up in Calgary in their cowboy hat and boots. And 
it's varying levels of awkward, depending how well they pull it off, but it's kind of, that part's meaningless. It's funny to look at. But what was more notable was the number of conservative politicians, first Danielle Smith, but then also Pear Polyev, and then a number of his MPs from Calgary, who all appeared next to uh, different individuals wearing homophobic or transphobic shirts. Uh, Polyev and Daniel Smith pictured beside someone wearing a giant straight pride shirt. And this other MP, uh, Jazraj Singh Halan, uh, was standing beside someone wearing shirts saying, leave our kids alone. And it had a small image of uh, someone holding an umbrella flag to keep the rainbows from hitting the children basically conveying the same message and all of the politicians where they gave a statement after said oh we just didn't notice the shirt and we don't agree with its message but that kind of betrays the decades now of political handlers that exist to prevent these kind of faux pas from happening yeah if we take them at their word then they were it seems like either poorly staffed understaffed or were not particularly focused on uh, worrying about what the, the shirt said, knowing that they could plausibly deny any kind of uh, endorsement of, of the shirt and just trying to, to allow the, the day unfold. I think if there is a, a calculation there, it, it may be that allowing the, allowing the photo to be taken and then issuing the, the deni- denial whenever the, the issue uh, erupts, it's, it's a way to to have multiple conversations at at the same time, which is something that we have seen Mr. Polyev in particular uh, be, be, be quite good at, where he will apo- appear among the, say, the truckers' protests, for for instance, and and endorse um, the idea of protest, but but then when push comes to shove, basically saying I'll I'll endorse the the bits that that you think are a good idea and everything else I'm not cool with either. And, and just sort of finding it, but, but doing that more, more smoothly than I'm, I'm conveying, because I think for, for some subset of the population, it actually worked. Some people would say, yes, he sees us and he hears our issues, even though he's not going to fully, fully endorse everything. Whereas everyone else says, well, he's just endorsing the idea of protest. And, and, and that's, that's fine too. He does. In other ways, he seems more, more mainstream. And so, he has this challenge, as every conservative leader of the last decade plus has had, to to try to have a conversation with centrist to center right voters who who could conceivably stay home or vote for the liberals or vote for the conservatives and this more populist uh, far right that is not just socially conservative but actively hostile to lgbtq communities that is deeply suspicious of aspects of of uh, modern canadian governing institutions to so to somehow get that vote to stay put and not go to say the the People's Party of Canada, but also to to continue to have a conversation with centrist conservative voters or would be conservative voters. It's it's hard to do, and uh, Polyev's solution seems to be to try to position himself as a true conservative, able to talk about mainstream pocketbook issues, but also find ways to to try to signal on the down low that he also can see and hear issues that 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 other population cares about. I can't wait for the hidden agenda messages of the next election whenever it comes i mean maybe we'll get to talk policy but history is not a good uh, barometer on apparently an election is no time to talk about politics or policy Stuart press thank you so much for filling in this week i hope you have a great uh rest thanks of your you summer. as well it's always a pleasure to come back and that has been playtoast find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca support the show and get access to our slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.